The U.S. Border Patrol apprehended nearly 100,000 migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border in February. And the pace at which new migrants are arriving now is showing no signs of slowing down. So why are Democrats rushing to stem the tide? Here's a hint. They don't want to. I'll explain up next. Friends, it's time to hold the line. Do you have to say quite clearly, don't come? Yes, I can say quite clearly, don't come. And what we're in the process of getting set up, don't leave your town or city or community. Welcome to Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. Really what the Democrats mean is don't come yet. Or at least don't come in these numbers quite yet. Let us prepare the ground for you. Let us get things ready so that when you arrive, it'll be a seamless transition from being a foreign national who has no legal right to be in the United States when you cross over the border illegally to entry into the U.S. And then hopefully you'll show up maybe at some point in a few years at a court hearing. But let's be honest, there'll probably be amnesty before that, so don't worry about it. That's what the Democrats are actually saying. You see, Republicans, conservatives view border security as preventing people from illegal entry, from prohibited access in the United States. Democrats view the border crisis as our facilities are overflowing because we've enticed so many people to come here. Let's slow it down and have a more orderly illegal immigration surge. It's a major fundamental difference that everyone needs to understand that right now. The immigrants who are coming across the border are doing so because of what they were told by this Biden administration. In fact, what Biden's been promising for a long time. That much is obvious. Here he is. Here's Joe Biden back in September of 2019. What I would do as president is several more things because things have changed. I would, in fact, make sure that there is, we immediately surge to the border. All those people are seeking asylum. They deserve to be heard. That's who we are. We're a nation that says if you want to flee and you're fleeing oppression, you should come. You know, they could set up asylum courts right on the border to hear them right away. And they also could have a remain in Mexico policy or a third country safe agreement, but that would be a means of stopping the flow of illegal immigrants. And the truth is they don't want to do that. And that's what you have to understand. They don't have an interest in actually doing that. They just want to make sure that the flow does not look disorderly. They want to make sure that as we go forward here, there's not that much video footage of hundreds of people at a time just walking across the border which by the way is still against the law, and then waving down border patrol and saying, here I am, I have a credible fear of violence in my country, I want asylum. And that's it. And then they get processed and then they're released, often at a nearby bus stop or just dropped off somewhere. And they're told, you know, you better show up for court. We don't know when the date is. The court's backlogged, by the way. It was backlogged hundreds of thousands of cases. The last time there was a surge, it's going to be backlogged again. But that's the whole point, don't you see? The overwhelming of the system, it means that they can't actually be processed, which means that everybody who shows up gets to stay or close to it. People will roll the dice. If you have an 80% chance of showing up at the border and getting to stay in America forever, if you get to flee not just Central American countries, the so-called Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, but any country from anywhere around the world where you'd rather be in the United States, if you have, let's say, an 80 or 90% chance, which is probably not even the actual rate. It's higher than that. But if you had an 80 or 90% chance of being able to stay in the United States just by walking across the border, would you do it? 
This is the problem. It's the magnet. It's the enticement, the inducement to break U.S. immigration law. And Democrats are fine with it because as far as they're concerned, these are new voters for them. In fact, Chuck Schumer is already saying we need to integrate. Now, be very careful with this. We're not talking about legal immigrants here. I'm talking to you about illegal immigrants crossing our southern border in violation of existing federal law and then intentionally not showing up for their asylum hearings because they won't qualify. Here's what Chuck Schumer says about them. My strongest desire is to pass comprehensive immigration reform. I've felt that way since 2013 when the House blocked it. And we'll do everything we can to explore that area. Um, the House hasn't sent us the comprehensive bill yet. Uh, they're in the process of sending us other legislation. We get, want to get do, do as much as we can to uh, make immigrants welcome in America, to make sure that America uh, integrates Im immigrants into our system of government, and we'll keep fighting to get as bold and strong a bill as we can. Bold and strong a bill. What do you think is going to be most bold in the bill? I'm pretty sure it's going to be amnesty with a capital A. Millions and millions of people who came here illegally being rewarded for it. They'll start by talking about DACA, but then DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, will turn into DAPA, Deferred Action for the Parents of Arrivals, which will turn into another version of DACA, Deferred Action for the Cousins of Arrivals, and you'll all of a sudden get to millions and millions of people that Democrats reward for breaking our immigration laws and then turn into voters, who of course will reward the Democrat Party in this process. That's really what this is about, politics. Politics, and also at some level, safety, national security, U.S. sovereignty. There's been some dispute as to whether or not what was said recently by Republican congressmen who were down on the border was true. There, there were claims that some people on the terror watch list had been caught at the border. Axios says four people on the terror watch, watch list have actually been arrested at the U.S.-Mexico border. So just want to say there are a lot of issues coming together here, but fundamentally the problem that we have with the Democrat approach to all this is that they don't see it as a problem. They just see it as something to be managed, not to be stopped. Illegal immigration benefits them. They want to control it. They don't want to end it. This is a fundamental difference and it's something we have to come to grips with and we have to oppose before that mass amnesty comes down and changes this country forever. The Republican Party effectively gets turned into a permanent minority political party. All right, townhall.com's Julio Rosas has spent the past several days at the border. He's going to give us a firsthand account after the break. Before we go, a reminder to tune in tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern time for the first uh, digital documentary, America's Forgotten Epidemic. The program explores the history and root causes of America's current opioid epidemic and what we can do to stem the tide of this deadly crisis. Here's a quick look. I don't know, I can't read. There's a sign and okay. I can't read them. Okay. I'm scared. But you're unable to wake him up? No, I died and they won't wake up. So I can tell you from my firsthand experience, in almost every city in America, you have cartel representatives. They, uh, they're very violent. They've threatened my detectives. They've threatened my detectives' kids. There's a whole new level that we weren't used to just being average police officers. So no matter what city we're talking about, the gangs are involved with drugs, the gangs are involved with gun trafficking, and in the case of drug trafficking, it's coming from the cartels. When you learn sort of the, the scheme and schematic of how grand the operation is, it's, it's, it's quite uh, crazy.
And, and dealers are street pharmacists, right? They're going to mix whatever gets the person the high, and they, there's no, okay, we're going to have two ounces here and three ounces here of this. There's none of that. I'm just going to do this and this and this, and here's my drug, and you want it. This is how much it's going to cost. Go use it. If you like it, come back. When I was the head of the SOD operation, I started seeing 100, 200, 400, 700 pounds of meth being seized all over the country. It was like, what the hell is going on here? But you know what's going on? Those Mexican cartels are dominating. But what's scary is their new partnership with the Chinese organized criminals. We started seeing a lot of overdoses, and it was accidental overdoses, and it was people that were buying fentanyl in bulk, either from China and or Mexico. And, and you gotta remember, when this whole thing with fentanyl started, it was really a China that started it all. And I remember hearing stories about informants being told or undercover personnel being told, you know what you're getting into. Like, they had a disclaimer with it almost because people were dying left and right. Does China know what they're I'm sure they know because it's a communist country and they control everything that goes on in China, right? So they know the end users of their end. I'm sure they know because business is booming and they're also destroying America. And in my opinion, a communist country like China has a very big adversary in America. The greatest threat to the United States right now is Mexico. The second greatest threat to the United States right now is China. The drug crisis in America is not just a public health crisis. It's a national security threat, and our lawmakers and our executives in Washington have to wake up. We need some very serious leadership on this problem. This is not going to go away just by talking about it. America's Forgotten Epidemic premieres Thursday, March 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern, exclusively on The First. America's Forgotten Epidemic begins tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on The First TV, and we'll be right back. I love and respect our nation's protectors, men and women in the military, our veterans and first responders, and while there are many great programs out there designed to assist and provide treatment to our warriors in different capacities, one stands out above the rest, Warrior's Heart. Warrior's Heart is dedicated to healing our nation's warriors. They provide the first and only private accredited treatment program in the U.S. for warriors only. That's military, veterans, and first responders who are faced with the self-medicating struggles of alcohol addiction, prescription and drug addiction, PTSD, mild traumatic brain injury, along with other recurring issues, all in a private 40-bed facility on a 543-acre ranch. More so, Warriors are provided with a minimum 42-day peer-to-peer residential treatment program, and Warriors Heart gives Warriors the options of day treatment, outpatient, and sober living with a 60-day minimum. To reach their 24-hour hotline, dial 866-950-0636, and your call will be answered by a Warrior. To learn more about their treatment center, go to warriorsheart.com slash the first. That's warriorsheart.com slash the first. Well, given the, 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 the tremendous rise and surge of individuals coming to the border, wouldn't it be fair to call it a crisis? Because that's what your agents are calling it. Mr. Ranking Member, uh, I'm not spending any time on the language that we use. This administration has a border policy. Can you succinctly say what that policy is as it relates to the border? Congresswoman, the border is secure and the border is not open. The border is secure and the border is not open. Really? That was DHS Secretary Mayorkas earlier today, still refusing to call what's happening at our southern border a crisis. Well, our next guest strongly disagrees. Julio Rosas, senior writer for townhall.com. 
He just left the border town of McAllen, Texas. He joins us now to tell us what he saw over a whole week down there. Julio, let's start with this. Is this a crisis? Yes, Buck, it, it absolutely is a crisis. And it's it's that for a number of reasons. Number one is just the massive numbers of illegal immigrants crossing into the United States uh, in a 24-hour period. And that increase has been ongoing since around a, uh, April of last year. Uh, however, we've seen just a dramatic increase uh, since January. And obviously, one of the main factors uh, that has changed since January is uh, President Biden. And so uh, the, the issue is that we're seeing the effects of this administration's open border rhetoric and policies, because remember, during the campaign, he was saying no deportations for 100 days, he was going to end remain in Mexico, and he's followed through uh, on some of that. And so uh, Friday night, for example, in the span of only three hours, I saw uh, 263 illegal immigrants uh, crossing the Rio Grande and handing themselves over, over to Customs and Bor uh, to Border Patrol. And that was only three hours, you know, and that in the span of about 10 hours, that number was about 700. And that was only one sector uh, for the entire border. So clearly th this is uh, not slowing down. Are they are they mostly I mean, can you give us some sense? We're seeing some some photos that I know you took down at the border here. It looks like a, a mix. There are adult males. There are family units. There are children. I mean, I, I, is there some profile of who's, you know, the, the dominant profile of who's coming across, or is it a, a total mix of, of different uh, age uh, demographics and, and gender demographic, or your gender difference? So from, from what I've seen, it does seem to be comprised of uh, people claiming to be in family units. Uh, we do know that there is some trafficking with people claiming that they're their parents when they're not. Uh, but there's also unaccompanied minors. And uh, probably the youngest unaccompanied minor that I saw was she was eight years old. And she, uh, I believe she was- You saw an eight-year-old girl to... crossing alone at the border? She wasn't a group, but she wasn't, uh, she didn't have her parent or any legal guardian with her, you know? So that, that that's, again, that's kind of the issue that we're seeing is that the, that the, this influx that we're seeing, again, being incentivized by the Biden administration, uh, it's just, uh, we're seeing cases where there's kids as young as eight, there was other 10 year olds, 12 year olds, 16 year olds, uh, who were there crossing and making this very dangerous journey, uh, without their parents or any significant other in their, in their family. And they're in the, the hands of complete and total strangers. And so, uh, that, that's again, the issue when we have, uh, this incentivization going on because then the number of these uh, very, very at-risk groups uh, are increased. And obviously the, the cartels who do partake in human trafficking, they're making more money now than they were previously because not only they're making money in their narcotics that they're smuggling, but now they got uh, a bigger customer base that is willing to pay uh, them to come into the country because they feel that their investment is going to have a much better chance at being able to stay in the United States as opposed to being deported right away. Did, were you able to get some sense of, of what of the people who are crossing, and, and when you're talking about just walking across the border is illegal, I think people need to remember that, that, that it's not allowed to just walk from Mexico to the United States, you have to go at a port of entry. People are walking across the border. What percentage of the people that are doing this are released in the American interior after processing? Do we have some sense of that? Yes, yeah, yeah. so we know that they're not deporting uh, family units and uh, unaccompanied minors in as numbers as they did uh, previously under the uh, Trump administration. Now, in terms of numbers, it is a little bit hard to ascertain just because, and this is a, a broader issue, uh, the Biden administration it has really clamped down 
on transparency, whether it's the, the numbers or the uh, facilities that the uh, unaccompanied minors are in, and that's because they don't want the bad imagery since these facilities are, are over, way overcrowded, they're way over capacity, and that's just because they can't process them fast enough because they're, they just they just keep coming every single day. What happens so in, in know, the processing, Julio? Because we keep getting told that the, pro, you know, how long are people being, how long is a family unit on average being detained for processing before they're released in the U.S.? So it, it depends on where they're apprehended. Uh, for example, in McAllen, uh, the, the Border Patrol has set up a processing site kind of along the trail on this road that they typically use to turn themselves in. And that, that is, uh, the hope is to get them out of the system uh, as quickly as they can, whether they're gonna be deported or whether they're gonna be released in the United States. Uh, and that's one of the things that has to, that was one of the new things that has been implemented just because they have to try to absorb uh, all these numbers. So uh, in Brownsville, uh, they're being uh, dropped off at the bus station and then there's COVID testing that is done at that bus station by the city. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the city doesn't have the authority to hold them. And even if they did, there would be no place to put them because again, there's just no room. And so even if they test positive, they're still able to go onto buses and go to other places uh, in the country. And and you have already so, you've already heard and already started to see that the Biden administration is, is I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's not easy for you to get somebody from the press office at Border Patrol or ICE to sit down and have a long conversation with you about what's going on. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to, to give an example, really the only people within the Border Patrol community that is actually speaking to the press are the union members. And that's because they're in their contracts that, are, that they're allowed to do so. Uh, but, uh, and, and the reason why is just because uh, the official channels, the typical channels that you would normally go for comment, it's been met with silence. And that's something that I experienced personally. Uh, NBC News just put out a report saying that uh, Border Patrol uh, sectors uh, have been told to not do ride-alongs. I did put in a request for a ride-along in the Rio Grande Valley. I've yet to hear back uh, from, from them on that. And so th this is, they, they know, they know that this is, uh, outside the crisis, they know it would be bad optics if people would really have a good unfiltered look at to what's happening. And so this is just, again, the effects of what we're seeing uh, when we have an administration that incentive, that does incentivize through policy uh, this massive increase of human trafficking. I'm assuming, Julio, that uh, this is expected to continue on for some time and, and probably get a little worse. Yes, and and that's the most concerning part because the the projections that we've that were initially made in January we've already surpassed those projections in March, and this is not even the peak season of when tip, people typically cross. They do like to cross in the springtime because it's not as hot uh, as it is during the summer. So uh, spring is right around the corner, and so uh, I would be curious to see what the numbers are looking ahead in March, uh, March and May, and, and then into June. But it does look like it's going to uh, get worse unless things change from the administration, but it looks like they're pretty uh, well entrenched in, in continuing down this path. Julio, great work as always, man. Stay safe and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. A deadly shooting spree left eight people dead in several Atlanta area massage parlors on Tuesday, and some on the left have already begun to point fingers. More on that with the first TV's Tiana Lowe when we come back. Have you ever wanted to invest in real estate, but you didn't have the time to do it on your own? I felt exactly the same way as you until about a year ago. I've always loved the idea of real estate investment, but I didn't know how to invest in real estate while staying committed to my profession. I do five hours of original programming and content every day. 
How could I possibly take the time to invest in real estate on my own? Then I met my friends at Done For Your Real Estate. They took all of the guesswork out of it for me. They found me an awesome property. They rented it out for me right away. They managed the tenant for me. And now I get a check every month like clockwork. Don't wait another second to see if my buddies at Done For Your Real Estate can do for you what they did for me. Visit doneforyoubuck.com to see how it works. They will take you through this process step-by-step step, from picking the city, the house, getting set up with the right bank, getting the tenant in place, all of it. Visit doneforyoubuck.com today to begin your own real estate investment journey. That's doneforyoubuck.com. Check out your own real estate investment journey the Done For You way. Yeah. At least eight people were killed on Tuesday when a lone gunman went on a shooting spree in three Atlanta area spas. According to reports, at least six of those murdered were Asian women. Police have identified the suspect in the case as 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long. We don't have additional details as to the motives of the shooter at this point. The murder comes as the issue of anti-Asian hate crimes has begun to garner national attention. According to one report, there were nearly 3,800 incidents of anti-Asian hate reported since March of last 2020, which is a rise of more than 30% from the previous year. There's not any evidence yet that Tuesday's slayings were racially motivated, but that hasn't stopped many from speculating. So here's what we have going on. A terrible incident, horrible violence uh, against women, and it's one of these circumstances where there's a lot of people immediately jumping to a political narrative. We don't even have all the facts. There are some indications, in fact, from uh, law enforcement, though they said the motives are still being figured out. They're still in the process of understanding what really happened here. But there are some indicators that this was actually somebody who had a, a sex addiction, was obviously a deranged and violent individual, and that based on some social media posting and some of these early indicators, he may have sought to target what could have been illicit spas, as in spas where there were activities of a sexual nature taking place. That's reporting from USA Today. It's not confirmed yet. We don't know. We just know that we have a situation here of multiple murders of Asian women at these spas, three different spa locations, and a very sick and, and evil individual uh, accused of, uh, allegedly guilty of all of these different murders. But immediately this becomes, in this circumstance, a, a point of politicization. What you have are people that are talking about this as an anti-Asian hate crime. Now there have been anti-Asian hate crimes in recent weeks that have gotten in the headlines. What's interesting is there's often not a lot of focus or attention paid to the perpetrator of the hate crime because in many cases what we're finding is there are minority on minority hate crimes that are occurring in the context of these Asian American attacks. Which is why Vox, for example, a, a left-wing news website put this up, the history of tensions and solidarity between black and Asian communities explained how white supremacy, this is the part below, you see, how white supremacy tried to divide black and Asian Americans and how community, communities work to find common ground. Uh, there is now a narrative, a threat out there that anti-Asian hate crimes, even when perpetrated by non-white minorities, are the result of white supremacy. 
So you need to understand that that is now out there and that is also something that is being attached to what we see here, although in this case it is a white perpetrator. It's being attached to this, this incident that happened, this, this terrible mass shooting in Atlanta. Here's a quote from Vox about this. Ultimately, there's a failure to remember what got America to a place of racial hierarchies and lingering black Asian tensions, white supremacy. White supremacy is what created segregation, policing and scarcity of resources in low-income neighborhoods, as well as the creation of the model minority myth, all of which has driven a wedge between black and Asian communities. So, I mean, here's Vox straight up telling you that tension between the black and Asian community in this country is the result of white supremacy. So even when there's not actually, and in this case, to be clear, there was a white perpetrator of this crime, but in other cases, it has not uh, often been a white perpetrator of the hate crime against an Asian American or just a person who's Asian who's here in the United States visiting. Um, even in those cases, we're told that the real enemy is white supremacy. Of course, there's also gun control. And this will be a, a case where we'll have to see whether, whether any of the weapons, uh, any of the weapons used here were illegally obtained. But for the purposes of Democrats and legislation, it won't really matter uh, whether they were obtained illegally or not. They're just going to say, what we have to do here is find a way to, to take this crisis, uh, yet another mass shooting, and use it for the, the emotional pull that it has on people to push gun control. And I just wish that we could have a, a little bit of a pause before every incident here has to be broken down into whatever the racial ramifications are as seen by the woke left, which is obsessed with cancel culture, and just find out more of the facts about incidents like this, because the country is feeling tense these days. There's a lot that we need to do to work together on and come back together on. And this kind of divisiveness along racial lines is just deeply unhelpful for, for all of us. As millions of Americans receive their COVID-19 vaccinations, many states have begun to ease public health measures. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves was among the first in the nation to lift both his state's occupancy restrictions and mask mandates. He's gonna join us when we come back. This new order removes all of our county mask mandates and allows businesses to operate at full capacity without state-imposed rules or restrictions. Two weeks ago, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves became one of only a handful of governors to give Americans their power back, lifting statewide mask mandates and letting businesses reopen. That's not the only good news for Mississippians. Yesterday, the state opened COVID vaccination appointments to all residents 16 years and older, with Governor Reeves tweeting, Get your shot, friends, and let's get back to normal. Amen to that. So how's Mississippi doing since fully reopening, and why haven't other states followed suit? Well, let's ask the man of the hour himself. Governor Tate Reeves joins us now. Governor, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today. I remember early on here, after you announced that you were reopening right alongside the, uh, the announcement from Texas, there were some folks in the media and the Democrat Party in particular that referred to this as Neanderthal thinking, I think it might have even been the president himself. What do you have to say based on how it's how the reopen has gone and what the numbers look like so far? Well, I will tell you when the president uh, called all of us in middle America Neanderthals, I couldn't help but uh, be reminded of when Hillary Clinton called uh, all of us deplorables. It just that's exactly what came to mind. But the reality is things are going very well. We peaked about two and a half months ago 
at 2,400 cases per day for a seven-day average. We had 350 cases today. We've had less than 1,000 cases over the last four days. And so our numbers have plummeted. Our numbers of new cases has plummeted. But more importantly than that, our total number of hospitalizations has plummeted. We peaked at 1,444. Today, we're at 280. So we're down over 80% in hospitalizations. And after all, that's really what we've been focused on here in, in our state. While number of cases is worth looking at and it's important, what's really important is that we ensure that we protect the integrity of our healthcare system. And so we watch hospitalizations, we watch number of patients in ICU beds. Our number of patients in ICU beds peaked at 370. Uh, today, we're down uh, less than 100. Again, so, down over 80%. So all these numbers trending in, in the, the residents of Mississippi's favor in a big way, which is great news. What did the reopen mean? What are the things that have changed in your state? So, so folks that are watching this across the country can also get a sense of what have you done that hasn't resulted in a, a surge, as Dr. Fauci and others likes to constantly warn us about, but actually you still have a continued downtrend here. What, what are the things that have changed, uh, Governor? Well, we never had a statewide mask mandate in Mississippi, at least dating back to the end of last summer. What we did have is countywide mandates based upon an objective criteria, which basically said that if any particular county in our state, we have 82, if any of them had more than 200 cases or and or more than 500, 500 per 100,000 residents, then we instituted a countywide mandate. Now, at the peak, that got up to where not all, but many of our counties uh, had those mandates. We took all of those off because that's what the data showed. You know, uh, folks like um, the liberals in Washington want us to focus on the science and focus on the data when the numbers are going up, but they want us to ignore that when the numbers start coming down. And that makes absolutely no sense to us. And so what we've seen is that we've opened up um, to full capacity, our restaurants, our bars, there are no restrictions on any of them. The only restrictions we have left in our state, we have no restrictions, by the way, on outdoor stadiums, uh, which is really important here because we have two of the top five college baseball programs in America, and it is not unusual for us to get 10,000 Mississippians in a college baseball stadium for a college game on the weekends. So that's uh, no restrictions there. The only restrictions we have left are on indoor large venues, and we currently are limiting them to 50%. But as we see more and more trends of the total cases going down, while at the same time total number of vaccinated going up, I would expect us to, to really move to absolutely no restrictions uh, very, very soon. Governor, what, given what you've seen since the removal of restrictions and the downward trend, and now you can look back, as you said, at the data over the course of the pandemic for Mississippi over the last 12 months, would you think long and hard before going back into a state of lockdown? Do, do you think differently at all about some of the restrictions that were CDC recommended over the last year and that many states went into now that you've actually gone through 12 months of the pandemic and seen what the data says about what works and doesn't? Well, there's, there's no doubt that we better understand what works and what doesn't work today. Uh, I will tell you that in our state, we basically had no major shutdown. Uh, we did have a shelter in place order for a couple of weeks dating back uh, to, to April of last year. Uh, but the fact is our economy has been back open. 
It's the reason when you look at our, our total unemployment, for instance, we're in the top five in the nation in terms of jobs recovered this month compared to where we were a year ago in the, in the heat uh, of the transition. But there's no doubt that we know more now and, and many of those uh, governors in the West Coast and the East Coast that have had their economies shut down for months and months, um, I think hopefully they could even look at it and say that perhaps that was a bad decision. Another bright spot in your fight against this pandemic is vaccinations. You're now the second state after Alaska to open up vaccinations to all residents. How'd you get there? What worked in this process that now you can open it up so everybody can get vaccinated? Because that's where we all want to be able to go. That's where the whole country is trying to go. No doubt. Um, by this weekend, we will have one million shots in arms in Mississippi. Uh, of, of that number, we started uh, based upon the highest risk categories where there was, there was a, a debate early on and, and some particularly again, those in, in Washington wanted to focus on who was more important or who should get it and who shouldn't get it. Well, we started very early saying the most at-risk people in our state are those 65 and older. The reason for that is because 90% of our fatalities during the life of COVID have come from those that are 65 and older. And so uh, right now we have approximately 60 to 65% of all Mississippians over 65 that have gotten their first shot. Uh, we've gotten almost 50% of all Mississippians over the age of 50 that have gotten their first shot. And the way in which we've done it in large part is because we have mass vaccination sites, uh, approximately 19 of them situated in every region of our state. Uh, we have deployed hundreds and hundreds of hundreds Mississippi National Guardsmen. And in conjunction with our partners at the State Department of Health, and the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, uh, just at those mass vac sites, we're able to put approximately 40,000 shots in arms uh, per week. Those are for first dose appointments and another 30 to 40,000 uh, per week for second doses. And because of that, we've been very successful at getting shots in arms. And it's something that I'm very proud of. I'm proud that everybody in our state that wants a shot can get a shot. I believe in personal responsibility. And, and when you uh, allow Mississippians to make their own decisions, it also allows you to open things up more quickly because um, people are going to make the best decision for themselves and their families. Governor Rees, you also signed a bill banning transgender uh, female athletes from competing in female sports. And you tweeted out, I never imagined dealing with this, but POTUS left us no choice. One of his first acts was to sign an EO encouraging transgenderism in children. So today I proudly signed the Mississippi Fairness Act to ensure young girls are not forced to compete against biological males. Uh, how, how is this going to work in practice and, and uh, how do you think this is going to be viewed in the rest of the country? Well, I don't know how it's gonna be viewed in the rest of the country, but I do know how it's gonna be viewed in, in my state. And it is overwhelmingly the popular and the right thing to do. I have three daughters myself, 116, 114, and 19. And I never envisioned or never imagined when I ran for governor of Mississippi that you and I would be having this conversation today. But the only reason we're having this conversation is because the president of the United States, President Biden, decided on one of his very first days in office and one of his very first actions was to try to ensure that biological males took away opportunities for young girls in our state. And we believe uh, that that particular executive order actually encourages transgenderism. 
that's bad policy for America, and it's particularly bad policy for the state of Mississippi. And that's why we were proud to be one of the first states with overwhelming support uh, to, to get this bill done. Governor Reeves, thanks very much for your time. Good luck to you. Thank you. Have a great, great day. We've got quick hits coming up next. Stay with us. You never thought COVID-19 could cost you your home, right? Well, it just might. Here's why. Cybercrime across the board is up about 75%. And by far the most serious cybercrime to worry about is home title theft. That's right, cyber criminals, foreign and domestic, are now after our homes, and it's easier than you'd think. The title documents to our homes are online now. The thief finds your home's title and forges your signature on a quitclaim deed stating you sold your home to him. Then he takes out loans on your home and leaves you in debt. You won't know until late payment or eviction notices arrive. Insurance doesn't cover you, and neither do common identity theft programs. That's why I protect my home with Home Title Lock. The instant Home Title Lock detects someone tampering with my home's title, they help shut it down. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim, and then you can use code RADIO to receive 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. Again, code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. President Biden ramps up the tough guy routine with George Stephanopoulos, and CNN is upset that Ron DeSantis is taking credit for the success of Florida, which is the state that Ron DeSantis is the governor of. We got those stories in quick hits. Let's get right to it. Biden says a lot. Hyden Biden, still declining, says a lot of things that if you pay attention to them, you find yourself wondering, what the heck is he talking about? Um, And sometimes he says things where you say, that's not true. This is one of those times. Putin authorized operations during the election to under, denigrate you, support President Trump, undermine our elections, divide our society. What price must he pay? He will pay a price. I, we had a long talk, he and I. We've, I, I know him relatively well. And I, the conversation started off. I said, I know you and you know me. If I establish this occurred, then be prepared. You said you know he doesn't have a soul. I did say that to him, yes. And to end, his response was, we understand one another. He must have, I mean, first of all, Joe mutters things. Who can really understand what he says half the time? Uh, but beyond that, really, Joe, you're going to tell another world leader, you, know, you, you don't have a soul. Interesting. I mean, maybe he said it in a joking fashion, but now he's acting like a tough guy. But I mean, you really believe he said that to him? Also, doesn't this sound a bit like a ripoff of George Bush? And you know, I looked into Pootie Poot's eyes and I said, you know, I know, I know you got a, you know what I mean? You know, he actually said he had a good soul, I think, George W. Bush. Turned out he was wrong about that one. It is what it is, but uh, let's get on to the next one here with Ron DeSantis, who is taking a victory lap because he has earned a victory lap with what's going on in Florida, a massive inflow of people. Other big blue states that listen to the science have had people fleeing them all over the place, uh, but Florida has been the place that people have sought refuge in because it is not locked down. There isn't the same degree of anxiety and panic. The economy is doing better. And it is clearly catapulting Ron DeSantis to the front of the GOP. Here's how CNN, here's how CNN reports on this. A year into the pandemic, Florida's booming and Republican Ron DeSantis is taking credit. Yeah. Well, he is the governor of the state. 
and Florida is booming. So I'm, I'm just wondering, the framing of this is interesting. It's not the worst CNN headline ever. There are worse CNN, oh, I mean, every day there are worse CNN headlines. That's a pretty bad one though, don't you think? A year into the pandemic, Florida's booming and Republican Ron DeSantis is taking credit. Hmm. Yeah, that's one of those. And then there's uh, the vaccine, which as you know, is life-saving in many cases, how we get to herd immunity, great stuff. Medical miracle, the vaccine and the various vaccines out there. The Europeans are having some trouble right now with AstraZeneca. You've had a number of very large European countries temporarily suspend the usage of the AstraZeneca vaccine based upon blood clots, but it turns out there are actually fewer blood clots in the general population than the vaccinated population. They're figuring it out over there. Over here, things are moving apace. We're, we're getting going with the vaccines. And there's been some criticism for a while about how if only Donald Trump would come forward and say, get the vaccine, that would be a game changer. Well, here's what Trump said. Would you recommend to our audience that they get the vaccine then? I would. I would recommend it. And I would recommend it to a lot of people that don't want to get it. And a lot of those people voted for me, frankly. But, you know, I, again, we have our freedoms and we have to uh, live by that. And I agree with that also. But it's a great vaccine. It's a safe vaccine. And it's uh, something that works. It's a great vaccine. It's a safe vaccine. The president himself got the vaccine, even though he had COVID. So he has antibodies and some degree of immunity from it. But can we at least now stop with the vaccine hesitation is Trump's fault nonsense? Can can we get rid of that? That'd be great Uh, because there's actually a lot of vaccine hesitation that comes directly from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on the campaign trail telling everybody that you can't trust the FDA under Trump because, you know, he's Trump, right? That hurt vaccine credibility in a way the Democrats still haven't grappled with. Here's Trump saying, I got it. You should get it. It's good for you. It's safe and go for it. And then what would MSNBC do if they couldn't put people on TV, contributors, anchors, all of them, uh, to talk about racism constantly? It's It's a question that I don't think anybody has a particularly good answer to. Um, But they're still blaming Trump for the racism in this country at MSNBC. Play the clip. We have Donald Trump to thank for this wonderfully Mm -hmm. disgusting and grotesque outpouring of open racism, the likes of which we really haven't seen in this country, uh, you know, in in a mainstream cultural sense, I would say, since the 1950s, if not the 1920s before that. So we do have Donald Trump to thank for that and Trumpism. The country is now the most racist it's been since the 1950s? Based on what? Does, does reality matter at all anymore? I don't, I don't know. It feels like people just say whatever their audience wants to hear and whatever is going to get the liberals at home at MSNBC feeling virtuous. Because if they're watching this nonsense, they, they obviously aren't racist, but it's the other bad people who are the racists. Uh, but that's why you can watch this. So at least I live in reality. You know, I'm not perfect, but I do live in reality. That's it for tonight's Hold the Line. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is up next. Shields high.